Most of us spend our lives trying to avoid death, but for Vincent Graziano, death is inescapable. Graziano's a third-generation funeral director. His grandfather ran a funeral home on Manhattan's Lower East Side, and Graziano's been running one himself in Westchester County for more than 30 years. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. It's hard to find the humor in death, but Vincent Graziano has found a way to do it. He's written a comic novel called Die Laughing. It's about a 21-year-old man in Little Italy in the 1970s who works for the family funeral business and moonlights as a stand-up comic. Vincent joins us this morning on Cityscape. Good morning, Vincent. Good morning, George. I love how you open the book. You write, Frankie Grace often napped in a casket, but not just any casket, the mahogany model B-76. He had good taste, (laughs) if nothing else. Describe that casket. Well, mahogany is uh, is the the uh, the finest wood, so um, he wanted to be comfortable. So I have to ask the question: Have you ever, or do you, sleep in a casket? Uh, sleep, no. Rest, rest, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so they're comfortable. Well, we have to get you know uh, um, be able to describe the product to a uh, customer, so we have to get some uh, uh, some way of uh, of relaying what that does feel like in there. The adjustable mattress and the and the the velvet interior and you know, but the, it's not a habit. People care about that kind of thing. What does it feel like? Yeah, Did they ask those questions. <laughs> I've had other people lie down in a casket uh, uh, to test it out, but uh, it's it's not a ter- a, a, a widely uh, accepted practice. Most people want to wait for the last uh, last time around. I think. Yeah, I think I'll do that. Okay. Amen to that. <laughs> Frankie Grace, the main character of your book, was also born in a hearse, right? In the book, he was, yes. I was not, <laughs> in case you're wondering. I was, <laughs> I was wondering. Whether... I might have been taken to the hospital in a hearse, but I wasn't um, you know, born there. Frankie looks more Irish than he does Italian, although he is Italian. He has red hair and blue eyes. I see that your eyes are blue. That's correct. I do have an Irish grandmother. Yes, we kept that secret. Otherwise, they would raise our rent down on Mulberry Street. Uh, so we didn't let anyone know that. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> Funny. Well... Literally, before it was literally was an Italian neighborhood, was an Irish neighborhood, and a German neighborhood. You know, before you know, it always belonged to the lowest uh, socioeconomic group. I think now it's inundated with, with Chinese, obviously. So it has always belonged to the lowest uh, group on the ladder. Your novel, of course, is set in Little Italy, where you grew up. Mm-hmm. What was it like growing up there? Wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It, it wasn't the uh, the attraction it is today with uh, dozens of restaurants, uh, if you go down to Mulberry Street, you see one restaurant after another. It was, uh, it was a little quieter then in the 70s, uh, six, or six to eight restaurants, and it was a wonderful place to grow up. You write that if this neighborhood taught you anything, it was loyalty. That's what you write about Little Italy in the book. Sure, because uh, it was such a close-knit community. You knew everyone in that in that every building, every floor, everyone was always uh, was like a, a surrogate parent to you. You couldn't stray too far without uh, being noticed and uh, being uh, called down on it. So it, loyalty was a big part of growing up. Friendships last still you know, till today. You know, obviously uh, the friends you made down there, you grew up with, have lasted a lifetime. I guess you couldn't go far when you had people like the Lenas running around. You talk about the four Lenas in the book. They're women with names like Lena, but also Pascalina and Angelina. <laughs> the t- uh, yeah, the Lena Four. 
the Lena Four. And, uh, you know, part of the book was therapeutic because uh, it gave me a chance to remember those uh, those women that were in my building that were like surrogate grandmothers to me. And um, the wonderful smells that came out of their kitchens uh, as they cooked and uh, I did have um, all the names, like my the, the man that sang in the, in the tavern, Biagio. I did have an uncle that did that, and I did have an uncle that was a bartender. His name was uh, uh, Larry. So some of the names in the book were a way of me, for me to remember uh, that episode, that, that time of my life, especially around the Feast of uh, San Gennaro, which was an integral part of growing up down on Mulberry Street. Yeah, a big part of the book as yes, well. big part, yes. How has the festival changed over the years? <laughs> well, I think the character in the book kind of says that it was run better when the mob was involved. <laughs> you see things today that you would have never seen years ago. Like what? Palm readers, you know, standing you know next to the church. It's almost uh, sacrilegious, but... You see different types of foods being served, the uh, Greek food and Chinese food. You know, that that was all, that would have been unheard of years ago. The streets of Little Italy are narrow. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Now, I would imagine that when you're running a funeral home down there, it could be difficult to get in and out. Nightmare. An absolute nightmare. And years ago, I mean, uh, funeral. there was a funeral home on every every two blocks, you know. Actually, the Sicilians had a funeral home on Elizabeth Street, and the Neapolitans had a funeral home on Mulberry. That's how they settled when they when they came over. It was, it was that kind of regionality. Of course, people walked. They didn't need the cars. So years ago, it was a bit easier. But now, to have a funeral downtown is an absolute nightmare with the traffic and, the, you know, because everyone has to come back to the old neighborhood to visit, to view, the, the you know, meet the family. So traffic is a nightmare getting out of the neighborhood with a funeral procession is uh, is it's a nightmare. And you have a great story in the book about a funeral on Mulberry Street <laughs> during the San Gennaro Festival. Yeah, when Frankie makes a wrong turn and gets caught in the middle of the uh, of the feast, it's a um, it's an important part of the book, I think. And uh, with his cargo, especially on that day, it was a. Uh, it was one of the better parts of the book, I think. The casket gets caught on, what, a Zeppeli stand or something like that? <laughs> well, the, the concessions were so close to the uh, the front of the funeral home, even, you know, that you could not walk out the door literally without walking into a, a concession stand. So in that particular scene, uh, it does get caught on the on the uh, countertop, and uh, a little help from uh, the woman to help push it across, she puts a little oil on the on the top and helps to get the casket across that countertop. And that's one of the scenes in the book, yes. You lived above the funeral home that, on Mulberry Street, right? That's correct. My mom is still there. Is that right? She's still there. Is we the funeral a, home still there? No, it's a restaurant now. It's a Cafe Napoli restaurant on the, on the corner of Mulberry and Hester. But my mom is still upstairs, and we never told her we left. <laughs> she's still there. What was it like to grow up in this business? When you were growing up, you didn't know you were growing up in any particular business. It was just second nature. You know, you grew up above the funeral home, and you did all the little chores that were expecting, expected of you. I mean, after the closing hours, you, my mother would take me down, my grandmother would take me down to the parlor, and uh, we would empty the ashtrays and straighten up the chairs and vacuum the rugs, and it was just part of a, it was just second nature. So, you know, you didn't realize that it might not have been the most normal thing in the world to be uh, five or six years old and picking up flowers around someone's casket. But, again, that just became very natural. Was it assumed that you would become a funeral director? 
It is always assumed, I think, uh, they always want to carry down a tradition. I think that's a very important part of it, especially the funeral service. People that become funeral directors who who have a tradition of it in their family uh, come into it with a, a different understanding, I think, a different awareness of the uh, really what it takes to, to be a funeral director. The hours, the the, the manpower, the uh, being being able to uh, leave your home uh, on on Christmas Day if necessary. That that's all. That's how we grew up. So it, you come to it with a different understanding when when uh, when you have a grandfather in it, and when you're used to doing all those things, you you really come to it with a, your eyes open that this is a calling more than a you know, something, uh, uh, just any other profession. But in the book, Frankie Grace doesn't want to go down that road. He wants to become a famous comedian. Even a, even a not famous comedian. Right? <laughs> just a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's probably a dynamic in, uh, in many families. There's always uh, what you're expected to, what your parents expect you to do to become and what you have a desire to become. So it's probably a dynamic in every family. This is a stranger's juxtaposition of uh, of choices. But I think the book ultimately is about fathers and sons and uh, the choice between, you know, what you're expected to do and what, what you really want to do. Was that you at 21 years old? I, I have to admit I did, I did think about becoming a stand-up comedian. I, I did dabble in it uh, along the lines in high school and early college. So I did do that. I must say the funeral-related jokes that Frankie uses in his act are pretty funny. To me, it was almost uh, the humor was secondary to the vehicle of, of just, you know, moving the story along because it's hard to write comedy. It's hard to, I mean, the comedy is three-dimensional almost. You can write a, a joke on a piece of paper, but unless you have the feedback of an audience and are able to get that feedback and you work on your timing and, and, and your delivery, which you cannot do on paper. So it was difficult to write the the jokes, so I'm glad that you found them um, funny anyway. Thank you. Can you share a couple of those jokes oh, with no. us? Well, the, the, the classic one, I think, is when the uh, casket slides off the, the, the pallbearer's shoulders and it goes down the steps of the church along Baxter Street, and then stops in Tony's drugstore where it hits the counter and the lid pops open and the man gets up and says to the druggist, can you give me something to stop this coffin? So that's, that's a classic uh, funeral home joke. As far as your job is concerned, how important is it to find the humor every day in what you do? It's key because uh, I think laughing sometimes or humor, uh, it, it takes your mind off the, the really the terrible task that we have you know, to perform. You know, you're faced with your own mortality on a daily basis. So without that outlet, I think it, it can, you know, cannot lead to good things. You need that outlet. Frankie's dad was mm-hmm. not crazy about him going into comedy. Primo was his name. And he had a saying, laughing turns to crying. The phrase comes up throughout the book. And you refer to it as the gospel according to Primo. Yes. Those old timers always had this um the sense that the laughing turns to crying, uh, no good deed goes unpunished, uh, you know, this whole omen, this whole cloud that was, uh, you know, every time something is good is, go- is happening, something bad is going to follow. So you grow up with that, you know, you grow up with that, uh, that uh, the malokia, the evil eye, someone's always uh, going to be doing some harm to you. And uh, laughing turns to crying. The old timers were very serious, very serious uh, funeral directors. They would 
I still hear stories about people who are afraid to come to a funeral home because early on in life, some someone dragged them up to a casket. And uh, you know, today we have a, I think, a little more sensitivity to that. We would never do things like that. But people are scarred by the experiences they've had uh, early on in life at a funeral home. How many black suits do you own? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm unique in that in that I I don't own any. Is that yes, right? I, I'll wear grays and uh, and blues. I refuse to uh, get the black suit. In the book, Frankie's father, Primo, has black, <laughs> blacker, black pinstripe, and black-on-black black shadow stripe. <laughs> That's correct. That's one concession I, I made to myself when I decided to become a funeral director. I want to know if this really happened, because it happens throughout the book. Every time Frankie or his dad walks down the street, guys would scratch their private parts. Does yes. that happen with funeral directors? It, it, it happens. It, 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 it's, it still happens today. When I walk into a certain uh, cafe uh, and the people know the undertaker's here, it, it's, it's one of the things they do for self-protection. What does that mean? The, the, the etymology of it, I cannot tell you. I, I've asked people uh, all, all of my life, and I've gotten as many answers as people I've asked. Okay. But uh, is some somehow related to protecting yourself uh, from the uh, evil uh, undertaker's uh, uh, grasp. Now, you mentioned that you had different aspirations when you were growing up at times, thought about being a comedian mm-hmm. yourself. Now, I found this very telling in the book because Frankie feels stuck that he's destined to become a funeral director with these aspirations of being a comedian. And his best friend and manager, Sal, tries to get Frankie to have a positive attitude. And he points to the Empire State Building Mm -hmm. and he says, that's a reminder that something more is out there, something bigger. Did you see the Empire State Building like that growing up? Definitely. I mean, Mulberry Street was that unique street that if you look to the end of it toward Houston, the Empire State Building juts out there. And it was always, and and you never left our neighborhood. I mean, I went to school on Mott Street. I went to high school on 2nd Street, and I went to Pace University down by the bridge. So we never left that enclave. If not for seeing the Empire State Building, I would have never known there was there was area beyond the Littley. So that was always a focal point for me growing up, to look up North Mulberry and see the Empire State Building. There were a couple of other things that you wrote about Little Italy in the book that I wondered whether that really happened. One of them is... The scenario that you set up, little girls dressed as angels swung by a cable between fire escapes yeah. during the San Gennaro feast? Yeah. Actually, that would, I would, that would have been the, uh, the feast on uh, Elizabeth Street. But that was a feature of the feast. You know, in our neighborhoods, we had what we called feast envy. You know, San Gennaro was 10 blocks and 11 days. The St. Anthony had to be uh, 12 blocks and uh, 13 days. But one of the features of the uh, the feast on Elizabeth Street was the angel flying across the street. That seems pretty dangerous to hang a kid from a cable. <laughs> well, I, would, I would have thought so, but in my, in my book, it, it doesn't work out. No, it the, doesn't. The, the way it was supposed to. She crashes into yes, the crowd. <laughs> You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. Our guest this morning is Vincent Graziano. He's a third-generation funeral director and the author of a new comic novel called Die Laughing, set in Manhattan's Little Italy. More of my conversation with Vincent in just a moment.
You describe butchers in the neighborhood hoisting meat up on a rope and bringing that up to tenants in the building. Did yeah. that really happen? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, especially some of the elderly women couldn't, you know, make the steps, but the groceries were delivered that way. You know, a burlap bag would come out the window and then the groceries would be put into it and it would be hoisted back up to the floor. That certainly was uh, something that happened uh, quite often. Yep. You also write that the women of Mulberry Street elevated crying to a new art form. <laughs> I would imagine you experienced that sound yourself many times. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, again, we did live in the apartment above the funeral home, and uh, we were always uh, you know, told by my mother, be quiet, don't run around. But we would hear, we would hear the cries uh, from, the, from the funeral home uh, below us. But uh, it, it was... Uh, Always quite a quite a scene. It was a, quite a scene in those days, you know, the crying. It did seem to me at some point to be like a tag team of criers who, who was taking a breath while the others were crying out. But they were, certainly could have been hired as professional mourners. In the book, we learn of the death of Isabella Cianci, and she is the mother-in-law of mobster Johnny Balzidi. And she dies, and she has a daughter, Annunziata, who is more than emotional about her mother's death. And she screams at Frankie, don't take my mother, you can't take my mother. I would imagine that happens quite frequently in reality, where people just can't grasp the funeral director coming in and taking that person away. It's bad news when the funeral director's like Mike Wallace showing up in your office in the morning, you know, it's bad news. That's the first reaction of people not to let go, not to want to let go, especially an older generation. Uh, that, you know, one probably had much more hard times and losing that one person, that I, that anchor, meant uh, meant the world to them. So, sure, the, not to let go. You can't take him. It's not happening. It was always a first reaction. We still get it today. It's difficult to deal with, obviously, but you try to deal with it as best you can because that's what you are supposed to do. You, you're supposed to be able to help people through this time, and that's what we try to do. Frankie says in the book that to do what he needs to do, he goes into a functional coma. I do what I do by being someone else, by being somewhere else. I'm Abbott's Costello. I'm Jerry Lewis. I'm Rickles or Carson. Someone somewhere on a stage far from where I am. Well, the, the character needs to take his mind off the task at hand, you know, and uh, that that's why, how he did it. He, he practiced his, his com- comedic craft and before you know it, his other task was finished. You know, so that's how he that's how he dealt with the the stress of the the death. Do you do similar things? No, I don't. I don't. Well, you know, years ago I used to sing my. You know, when I had to close the lights in the funeral home, I would sing my way out from the you know from the front to the back door. I would I would talk to myself. I would uh, you know I always had a little little eerie feeling uh, being in the funeral home alone at night, but uh, I got over it. How important. For it, and I would imagine it is pretty important for the funeral director to get it right in terms of making sure the deceased person looks like him or herself. Frankie takes a lot of pride in that. He likes to hear when people say, oh, they look just like they did. That is, uh, that is one of the most important parts of what a, a funeral director can do. You know, if you're going to come to say goodbye to a loved one, having them look uh, as peaceful and as comfortable as possible is a, is an integral part of what we do. So it is a, it is key. It is key for a funeral director. But in the book, when Mr. Vespucci dies, his wife comes along and says, 
That's not his nose. That's not his nose. <laughs> As if we keep a stock of them somewhere. <laughs> Well, you know, you have six different people looking at someone, and everyone sees something different. You know, depending on where you, where you're standing, where you're kneeling, where you're sitting, everyone sees. And then there's always denial. You know, you never want to. That's not even him. You know, so that's something we deal with. And we expect to deal with it. Frankie says something that I think was particularly poignant in the book about death. Maybe it wasn't him who said this. Um, But in the book, there is a particularly poignant statement about death, that death is the ultimate paradox. It changes everything, and it changes nothing. That's his, uh, that was his love interest, yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, you you suffer a loss, and you you bang your head against the wall, and when you stop banging your head against the wall, you've still had the loss. So it is is an interesting uh, dynamic of, of death. And uh, I, I see that every day. I've seen it in my own life, you know. You mentioned Frankie's love interest. That's Katerina. Yes. Now, she is the daughter of the mobster Johnny Balziti. Yes. Now, Frankie's family, the Grace family, is from Naples. The yes. Balzidis are from Sicily. And these two groups don't necessarily see eye to eye. <laughs> That's correct. As, I, as, as I, Probably is better today than it was. <laughs> I like to think it is. But uh, there's always a little running, you know, between the Bades and Neapolitan and Sicilians. There's always this regional regional uh, differences that I think comes across in the book. Let me play a little something, and then you could explain what we're listening to here. Okay. okay? Yes. Here we go. Recognize that voice? Oh, do I ever. Jimmy Roselli. Yeah, Jimmy Roselli. When your old wedding ring was no great song. And Jimmy Roselli is the favorite singer of Johnny Balzini. Yes, that's right. I always say uh, all of those Neapolitan songs have such heartache, you know, even the happy ones. There's always someone dying or someone losing a girlfriend or some, you know, someone being left at the altar. And those were the love songs. <laughs> so. There was a great part of uh, even growing up on Mulberry Street, you always had these music stores, the Rossies, on the corner, and they always played this music uh, on the sidewalks. And it was, that's how we grew up, listening to Jimmy Roselli and, and all of those uh, Italian crooners. Tell us more about Johnny Balziti. Did you know uh, Johnny Balziti growing up on Mulberry Street? He's kind of... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can uh, grow up on Mulberry Street without knowing a few uh, Johnny Balzidis. But he was a combination of a few people that I uh, have come to know growing up. So there was a large mob presence on Mulberry Street back then? Was. Is. <laughs> <laughs> I would say uh, there, there certainly was. Uh, there were certainly characters that uh, one might suggest had a, a, a nefarious occupation. And as you mentioned, they had tight control over the San Gennaro Festival for a while? Yes. Well, I would certainly, uh, that's all public knowledge, yeah. You write that years of practice qualified Frankie to decipher the speech code (laughs) and charades of the mafia. Yes. Well, 
it was uh, one of the uh, interesting aspects of growing when you would always uh, see people who would, uh, out of fear of being taped or being watched, they would always either mime you know, or, or use lots of hand signals or, and uh, facial contortions to get a message across. And uh, it's something you pick up, and uh, it's, I call it mob speak, and it's something you certainly do pick up. Eddie is a family friend of the Graces, and he is involved with the mafia. He works for Johnny. Yes. Not the brightest bulb in the box, though. Uh, surprising, though, huh? How he how he turned out, but yes. certainly not the brightest bulb in in the in the in the box. But an interesting character, I think. Also, a couple of people I've known, a composite, if you will. But um, certainly, every neighborhood has a near duel, uh, you know, a hanger on maybe, or a, you know, a groupie that kind of uh, aspires to be, of all things, a mobster, and uh, that's. That's interesting in itself that we grew up in that area almost thinking that Elliot Ness was the bad guy because it was such a, an enclave, and you never, you never realized who the real bad guys were. You write that in Little Italy, college was neighborhood code for prison. <laughs> yes. True statement? Oh, definitely. Really? Yeah, so, yes. Whenever someone said, uh, you know, Johnny's in college, uh, it, that's what you, you knew what it meant. Frankie gets involved with the mafia. There is a Brinks robbery. All of that stuff is mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. When he goes to meet Johnny, they give him a drink called grappa. Oh yes. What is grappa? It's it's uh, it's turpentine uh, with a with a. It's unbelievable. It's strong. It's a pure al- grain alcohol, and it, and it's uh, it'll rip your throat open if it's if it's uh, the true grappa. Today they have all flavored grappas and. Uh, you know, mint grappa and uh, chamomile, but the real grappa is, should really uh, clear your sinuses and uh, keep you uh, clutching at your throat for a couple of minutes. Yeah, it's actually very funny to read while Frankie is struggling to talk after yes. he drinks this stuff. Grappa can do it to you. You write that an unmarked police car on Mulberry Street was as conspicuously out of place as brown shoes with a black tuxedo. Again, part of the uh, the, uh, the the clannish uh, dynamic of the neighborhood was when there was an outsider, you knew there was an outsider. And uh, when there was a police car in the neighborhood, kind of the antennas went up of uh, all the shopkeepers, and everyone knew that to be careful, whatever you were doing, there was uh, you know you were being watched. So, sure, that outsider in the book is clearly the main police investigator. Yes, Roscoe. Yes, I knew I knew a man like that, uh, a detective, police detective, who uh, who had a sing a single uh, mindset and uh, wouldn't wouldn't rest until he accomplished what he needed to accomplish. And we won't give away the ending of whether he actually does well, or whether Roscoe does that or not. Thank you. <laughs> Let's give them some reason to buy the book. <laughs> They're filming the movie The Godfather while all of the action is taking place in the book. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to include that? I, I thought it would help uh, set the time and set the uh, the uh, the atmosphere as well. And it actually did happen. I mean, I did watch them film that uh, certain scene of uh, The Godfather over and over and over again on Mott Street. And it made an impression on me, uh, even as a young man, uh, of Hollywood, you know, and reinstilled in me that maybe I, maybe I can uh, do something along the lines of show business, uh, acting, or comedy. But watching them do that was, uh, was kind of interesting. Uh, it was the first time I ever saw anything like that, the filming of a movie like that. 
The book also includes what I would describe as Seinfeld-esque moments, funny moments between Frankie and the people that he deals with on a daily basis, including his friend and manager, Sal. For instance, there was one exchange where they were arguing over the definition of cook, between cook and chef. Yes. Well, uh, Sal Lucci is is kind of uh, based very much on a dear friend of mine who owned the Paolucci's restaurant on Mulberry Street, 65, 70 years uh, until very recently. But uh, he learned to cook from his grandparents. And, uh, you know, he fancied himself a chef, and we would always go back and forth and say, no, you're not a chef, you're a cook. And, and that was the nature of how we would, uh, how we would, how our banter would take that course. And the final question I have for you, and I'm not sure if I should ask this question because I don't think you like to answer this question, and that is, or maybe I could ask your daughter this question, who's actually in the studio with us this morning. How long did it take you to write this book? It was, uh, it was certainly, uh, it took me uh, quite a long time. But, you know, it wasn't that I was writing every day either. You know, you'd put it away. I would send it out to try to get it published. I, would, I was rejected more, more times than a, an RCA Victrola. Uh, but I would pick it up and rewrite it and rework it. And I, so I would say it was 12 to 15 years before I, I got someone to nibble on it and, and say, uh, let's go. So it, it took a long time. I hope my next book won't take that long. Well, it's a very funny read, I must say. It's called Die Laughing. It's out now from Bold Face Books. The author is Vincent Graziano. Thanks so much for coming in. George, thank you very much. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. Have a great weekend.